0: Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Irene Pramod from the University of Michigan, and today I'll be in conversation with Professor Nisim Manathukaran, author of the new book, Communism, Subaltern Studies, and Postcolonial Theory The Left in South India, published by Rutledge earlier this year in 2022. Professor Nisim Manatukharan is Associate Professor in the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. He received his PhD in Political Science from Queen's University, and his main research interests today are focused on communist movements, development and democracy, modernity, the politics of popular culture, Marxist and post-colonial theories in South Asia. Professor Manatukaran's work has appeared in a wide range of journals, including Economic and Political Weekly, Third World Quarterly, and the Journal of Peasant Studies, among others. Before we delve into your book and its rich uh, conceptual and empirical material, I wonder if we could just get to know you a little more. Would you mind telling us a few words about your background and what led you to work on communism and modernity in Kerala and South Asia more broadly?
1: Thank you, Irene. Uh, it's a great opportunity to be here to discuss my book. Uh, well, as you uh, you know, just described some of my research interests, uh, the cue to why I wrote this and why I've been researching on this uh, lies there in the sense that I have diverse interests. So uh, you know, some of my main areas of uh, interest are Marxism, uh, post-colonial theory, Uh, modernity, Uh, I have an interest in cultural studies, so uh, I published uh, works uh, related to popular culture, you know, uh, in academic journals and as well as in the popular press. So uh, this seemed like a great project because uh, I wanted to, uh, you know, develop an empirical uh, anchor uh, to the idea of uh, all these uh, different interests I have. I wanted to, uh, you know, find an empirical uh, case study kind of thing uh, for these theoretical concerns that I have. So that's why, uh, as you uh, as you know from reading my book, that I try to meld theory and uh, the empirical work, uh, the empirical case. Uh, I have a strong interest in theory. I have uh, published an earlier book uh, which is on theory, uh, which is called uh, Derrida. Um, it's on Derrida. It's called uh, the rupture with memory: specters uh, of uh, Marx uh it's it's on derrida's work the specters of Moks. uh so uh, so these kinds of interests come together here uh in my empirical case study and i'm originally from kerala and um so the communist movement there seemed like a good fit to explore some of these themes and that's the reason why you have all this coming together in my book
0: exactly and thank you so much for that and welcome to this to this podcast and um And as we're going to get into it uh, in the next couple of questions, um, how you meld theory and and the empirical data that you have together so beautifully, it's um, it's um, there's so much there for us to really think about and and um, dwell on. So let's let's just get into it. So in the first chapter of your book, you follow the trajectories of subaltern studies and postcolonial theory to show both where they've taken us so far in our understanding of modernity, resistance and economic exploitation as well as, on the other hand, where they've fallen short. In particular, you show how communist universals with genealogies in Western Europe interacted with the very local and specific cultural and economic particularities of Kerala since the 1930s. Could you take us through this dialectic that you trace, you know, between the universal and the particular in the making of new communist, what you call national popular imaginaries in Kerala? And why is this dialectic so important in your work?
1: Yeah, so this is uh, uh, possibly the central argument of my book that uh, it's uh, uh, it's a dialectical relationship between the particular and the universal. So that's a central claim I'm making, in the sense that uh, uh, the works before, uh, not just with regard to Kerala, but uh, with regard to you know other empirical case studies or communism or uh, any related topics, uh, all these works have. Kind of, um, in my view, uh, moved from these two, like moving between these two poles of universalism and particularism, right? So my central uh, focus is obviously dealing with postcolonial theory and subaltern studies, powerful theoretical frameworks to understand the global South and uh, uh, postcolonial societies. But I also, uh, as you would have read from my book, uh, you would see that it's also reacting to criticisms of subaltern studies and post-colonial theory, especially, for example, uh, the big debate, uh, the influential debate that happened following the publication of uh, scholar Vivek Chibba's book, which was a reaction to subaltern studies and post-colonial theory, a critique of that uh, strand of scholarship. So if you notice that I am trying to you know, uh, critique subaltern studies and post-colonial theory, but also at the same time trying to critically engage with Vivek Chibba's work too. And I think these two works or these two strands of scholarship fall at at these two extreme poles, which is uh, universalism and particularism, right? So uh, subaltern studies and post-colonial theory have shown us powerfully why it is important to focus on the particular, because universal itself has been kind of colonized by europe eurocentric uh, universalism masquerading as uh, you know the universal for every society even colonized societies and the reaction uh, in terms of uh, the other side like say for marxism which talks about universal struggles uh, working class revolutions and uh, marxism socialism and so on so you get to see these two different poles whereas i am trying to argue that the national popular that uh, was built in Kerala by the Communists kind of mediated between this universal and the particular, right? So it is not just one versus the other, uh, and I think that is where my work is trying to, uh, uh, you know, take a different viewpoint on this: that we can't uh, exclude one for the other; we can't be falling between these two. Uh, uh, like you know, it's, it's two stools. So I argue that obviously Marxism is part of a universal history in the sense it was constructed that there is working class everywhere and every uh, every working class has to attain, uh, a, or reach a communist society by overthrowing a capital system and so on. Uh, but I'm trying to argue that these Marxist categories were brought from outside, obviously, but they became a vehicle for liberation by uh marrying with particular concerns of Kerala society, that is uh, specifically say, for example, feudal oppression caste, the biggest uh, issue that is confronting a society like that and not just uh, uh, Kerala, but the rest of India, and South Asia and so on. So Marxism, when it is translated, it becomes uh, national popular because it was melding concerns of language. For example, it created a strong linguistic identity in Kerala, in terms of a Malayali identity, but it was also addressing class, caste, and uh, the linguistic element, right? So it, it is a national popular in the sense that it was also simultaneously seeking to liberate India uh, from British colonialism. So you have nationalist concerns, you have linguistic concerns, you have caste and class all coming together uh, in in a combination. Uh, this does not mean that there are no problems, as you would read, Uh, from my work, uh, the book, that uh, this is not seamless. Uh, There are contradictions, there are tensions, uh, as I outlined later on in the book. But the fundamental point is that this national popular tried to marry all these uh, concerns into one. And that's the reason why it became successful. So I tried to counter works uh, which exist already in terms of saying communism in Kerala can be reduced to, say, it, uh, the regional identity or the linguistic identity that it became successful because it was uh, the idea of a Malayalam speaking region which became powerful with, with the communist movement and that's why it became successful I also challenge other works which reduce uh, communism success to just the idea of caste and because of caste oppression uh, it overcome caste oppression uh, communism succeeded in that so again reduced to one element so I try, uh, on the other hand, to ma- like talk about the fact that it, it had universalist concerns and it had particular concerns, particularly in the sense, uh, talking about the local here in terms of caste and linguistic identity and so on. So that is the fundamental uh, argument that I'm trying to make, that it is not just reducible to, for example, a linguistic identities, which is, say, for example, uh, prominent in a, in a very uh, important work which has appeared in the last... Uh, Decade Prerna Singh's uh, comparison of different uh, states in India and argues that Kerala is different because of the fact that, in terms of developmental outcomes, because of the strong regional identity, uh, linguistic identity fostered especially by the communists, whereas I am trying to argue that it is this national popular which goes beyond, uh, you know, the uh, just one factor, and uh, this. Uh, uh, dialectic relationship you can see, for example, in Marxism is from outside, but then it is vernacularized into the Kerala idiom by bringing in caste. Uh, the communists were the biggest, uh, uh, you know, opponents of caste oppression, especially overt caste oppression. Uh, in that sense, those concerns became uh, melded into uh, a classic Marxist or a communist uh, kind of struggle. Uh, so it borrows from outside but it's also marrying it with or uh, combining it with with local sources. Uh, As you read in my chapter on culture, you can see how uh, the progressive literature movement, for example, is borrowing from sources all over the world, right? I mean, the communist international, European literature, um, but it's also trying to develop uh, native literature sensibility through trying to build a linguistic identity, uh, Malayalam. And it's using the folk Uh, tradition of Kerala, but again, it is mixing with national and international uh, elements, ideas. Uh, So it's not just a regional or uh, local, uh, or a particular if you want to call it that way, idea, but it is trying to mix elements from different parts and different ideas and so on. So the fundamental argument that I make is that, so it's not uh, like, say, bourgeois nationalism is just talking about the division between Europe or Britain and India and it's kind of a cultural division, right? So Europe is different and India is different via the other uh, cultural other. Here, it's not about the culture difference only, right? It's it's not just about cultural differences we are talking about because it's also talking about material aspects, which I'll, uh, you know, we'll talk about later, feudalism and capitalism and so on. So it's not just imitating, uh, although uh, there are definite modernist elements or, you know, these are all movements located in the modernity project with their own uh, idiosyncrasies. So it's not just recreating a European script or a European uh, you know, drama that has happened elsewhere and just, uh, although that is the main accusation against you know communist projects and so on in the global south that they are just trying to uh, recreate or uh, copy models from elsewhere with no local or particular content. So I would say that it is a kind of an appropriation of the Enlightenment project, but with local concerns, Um, and so that's why I call it as the, you know, um, universal and particular, both are coming together. So some of the major theorists of the communist movement in Kerala, for example, uh, talked about how there is a need to overcome this binary, right? Uh, Either glorifying the past culture of India is great, uh, and uh, there's nothing else to be done, or just uh, decrying or just dismissing everything that has happened in the culture of India is worthless. We need to just copy Europe uh, or the West, like in modernization projects or uh, West-centric projects. So here we are trying to recover what is of value from the past, but also looking towards the outside world uh, to other parts of the world, not just Europe. For example, Soviet Union was the biggest symbol of liberation at that time, right? So you know, you're borrowing from different elements, uh, different aspects, to bring together this particular and universal, in, in my argument.
0: Yeah, thank you so much for that. And um, it's just wonderful to see, like throughout the book, with each chapter, you offers nuance. You nuance the whole thing that um, at least I've always heard, you know, in Kerala and elsewhere about, you know, this exceptional Kerala model. Um, that it's this, it's this story. It's a story of communism's exceptional success and of development, uh, kind of reaching its peak in this one state. Of, and yes, in to many degrees, that is true. But it's not the whole story. And and you offer that nuance in this book. Um, which is by tracing this long history of where we are now and where we've, you know, where we've been coming from and how it's this incomplete project at the end of the day, as you call it, it's this is ultimately yeah, absolutely. A
1: so You have uh, read it, right? Uh, because this is something that people miss because, you know, people are interested in uh, binary arguments, right? I mean, binaristic arguments that one versus the other, which is what we saw uh, in the debate following uh, Vivek Chibba's uh, book, was published, I mean, this huge debate between Marxism or Marxist and post colonial theory, and then it it, de- it kind of degenerates into a non dialogue. You're not, uh, you know, dialoguing, right? I mean, what on the other hand, what I'm trying to say is that I critique subaltern studies and post colonial theory, but there, there's immensely, uh, you know, useful, um, you know, uh, trend of, uh, of, of scholarship that is immensely powerful which can be used uh, in very ways to understand our present right so we can't be uh, doing this uh, binary understanding or indulging in binarism right so uh, so nuance is very important here as you have said correctly and uh, because we tend to get lost in this kind of uh, asserting that you know this is the this is the only uh, argument to make and there's nothing else there are no complexities and so on whereas I as you read right the, it's an Im- immensely complex uh, understanding that I'm trying to you know put forth in, in terms of bringing nuance and uh, not make it a, a, a one-sided argument
0: yes absolutely um, yeah we have to return to let's say Um, where we left off, which is now we are in chapter two, which is, you know, you continue to build on these themes. It's like this constant building until the very end where you build on these themes themes, and you explore the early history of socialism in Kerala from 1934 to 1940, um, approximately when the Communist Party in Kerala was formally founded. And a key historical event, which I found fascinating the way you describe it and delve into it, is um, the Alipi Kair strike, which organized peasant workers, not under Gandhian nationalism. And there's this whole explanation given in the chapter why that wasn't sufficient for this mobilization, not under Gandhian nationalism, but for the first time under a socialism that looked beyond Kerala, Kerala's caste-based feudalism. Would you, what would you say were the failings or the inadequacies of Gandhian nationalism that at this historical moment between 1934 and 1940, that made socialism a more appealing alternative, especially for peasant workers in Kerala?
1: Yeah, so this is also um, a crucial uh, phase of how communism or socialism uh, became uh, hegemonic in, uh, in Kerala. Uh, so you have to understand this because 1930s, uh, like in the rest of India, right? Uh, Gandhian nationalism became uh, huge. Uh, it became, uh, it started uh, from the earlier phase of Congress activism. It became, uh, it acquired a mass tone in which uh, people were entering uh, the freedom struggle. Uh, and so, in that sense, it, it 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 was a phase of great hope that you know uh, this will uh, not only achieve independence but bring real freedom to people and so on. But this was to be uh, belied by the uh, the kind of uh, trajectory that the independence movement took in India, the national independent movement uh, under the Congress, because uh, as historians have shown, that it was just uh, a perpetration of uh, an elite control over nationalism, right? In, in the sense that it did not speak about... Uh, For example, the oppressed categories within India in terms of, say, class or caste and so on. So it was a perpetuation of elite uh, control, nationalism. But then obviously Gandhi is a major figure who is trying to bring the masses into the freedom struggle. But without necessarily uh, talking about the most important material issues, you know, uh, or issues of caste oppression, for example. And in the Kerala context, for example, uh, Dilip Menon's work has uh, shown very powerfully how, uh, you know, this nationalism was not targeting or or not addressing the concerns of, for example, the lower caste, uh, for example, in Kerala, uh, who feared that, you know, this Congress nationalism would be just a a perpetuation of uh, upper caste Hindu control, right? I mean, so nationalism has to be dissembled like you can't just uh, talk about nationalism as if without uh, you know understanding the mechanics of what's going on inside it so uh, so the muslims were fearful of uh, hindu or upper caste hindu control over national the national movement the lower castes uh, the era was uh, and the formerly untouchable castes uh, uh, the dalits who are known as dalits now but the era was also as you know faced untouchability. So all these castes uh, were fearful of Congress or nationalism kind of, you know, being uh, an alibi for Hindu control, upper upper caste Hindu control. So that was one of the main weaknesses of the nationalist movement. So fragments like caste, class, uh, were not part of this national movement in India. You know, they could not talk about this because they wanted to keep the movement united, but it is under elite control. So the Gandhian ideas of like trusteeship. In which the landlords and princes were in uh, charge in the economic sphere, and the others were, you know, b- beneath them, basically in this kind of economic model. So there's no focus on economic or real structural issues of caste uh, here. It is uh, the main aim is to win freedom without necessarily talking about the internal constituents of this kind of nationalism, you know, uh, and that is where this Gandhian programs. Uh, these Gandhian programs did not appeal to, for example, the laboring classes. Uh, the laboring classes, for example, you know, what are you going to do with foreign cloth boycott when that was the cheapest good, uh, you know, available in the market? So you can't be boycotting stuff unless you provide an alternative to, you know, the workers and the lower caste. Well, for example, boycotting uh, liquor, whereas, you know, Many of these lower castes were involved in, uh, you know, say tapping toddy or liquor, uh, sale of liquor or consuming liquor, right? So you see how these programs have uh, kind of uh, are at a far removed from the concerns of, you know, the people, the masses, uh, the Gandhian programs. So no structural changes because this these were also because of the fact that uh, uh, Gandhi himself, uh, you know, for him caste reform was a moral and religious, as you know. Act of self awareness on the part of upper caste and change is a moral change. It's not an economic or uh, structural change. It is upper caste, uh, you know, shunning caste rather than an overthrow of the caste system per se. And, you know, the conflict between Gandhi and Ambedkar on this precise issue. So, this is the reason why communism or socialism beginning before communism began to appeal to uh, the masses because they went beyond this Gandhian Congress or Gandhian programs to uh, the elite control to talk about issues like caste oppression. Although, as you will see later, that this itself is incomplete, as you mentioned. It's, it's, uh, the communist national popular itself is incomplete uh, that we can talk about later. But they went beyond the Gandhian uh, nationalist idea because they confronted feudalism, they confronted landlordism, they confronted uh, overt caste oppressions and uh, violent uh, oppression of the lower caste by the feudal landlords and so on. Um, so, And they also took nationalism to the princely states, the uh, states ruled by kings. And they challenged the internal enemies also, not just the external enemy of the British. So they were f- struggling for responsible government in the princely states or the king kingship uh, ruled states and simultaneously trying to talk about wages, uh, rights of workers uh, and farmers and peasants. So that's one of the examples in the early period is this 1938 choir worker strike, which is trying to talk about political and economic uh, concerns, not just economic issues, and also responsible government and those kinds of ideas are coming into the picture in which the workers are coming to the fore. Uh, and entering the independence struggle, but by talking about their uh, class or material issues also. So that's the fundamental change that uh, that you are not able to address this, so that you have a vehicle now to talk about actual issues of material caste, oppression, and so on. So this misrecognition and exploitation under feudal system, both materially and symbolically, culturally, had no solution under Gandhian nationalism. And that's the reason, uh, this promise of overcoming the split between you only talk about symbolic issues, not material issues. Uh, You only talk about freedom from the British, but what about the freedom internally from uh, the landed classes, capitalists and so on. So that promise of overcoming the split in the freedom movement is why uh, communism became attractive to the people, the masses.
0: Thank you so much for that. Uh, that lays it out so clearly, and especially the way you bring the peasant, work, the figure of the peasant worker, to the forefront of of what's going on here. This is also what you carry over into chapter three, where you show how mass movements, particularly among peasant workers against feudal landlords and the state, paved the way for communists to build again this national popular will and imaginary and lead the national liberation struggle, again, not under Gandhian nationalism, but under something quite different and locally, and locally specific um, under communism. And this is the focus of chapter three. And what strikes me from, from your account of this rise of communism is the pivotal figure of the peasant worker in bringing about a new modernity and this unified caste and class consciousness amongst those who were hitherto at the margins of society. And you've already touched on this to a um, large degree, but could you tell us perhaps some, just for in a few words, why the peasant worker and peasant consciousness is so central to your story of communism's rise and success in Kerala? And why, in particular, is it missing from so much of subaltern studies and post-colonial theory, whether peasant worker is not necessarily at the forefront of what's going on there in their, in those theories, story of stories of modernity and development.
1: OK, yeah, so this is a great question, uh, because it's not that it is missing in uh, the subaltern studies post-colonial theory. Um, uh, it is because the, their, uh, their approach is different uh, to the question. Um, so if you read uh, my introduction, you would know that one of the things that motivated uh, my work is also the fact that despite the fact that uh, subaltern studies uh, strives to focus on the subaltern and the marginalized subaltern, um, uh, the scholarship has not uh, looked at the communist movement in India in any great detail or depth. Uh, and that's an uh, irony which has been uh, paradox which has been pointed out by a few scholars. And so in that sense, my book is also trying to address this uh, lacunae that uh, a scholarship stream that seeks to study the most marginalized uh, peasant uh, or the worker um, is not looking at the one of the largest communist movements in the world. Uh, you know which which was built in india so that's one uh, but uh, the uh, the great uh, contributions of uh, subaltern studies and post-colonial theory are in front of us because we need to critique modernization theories a linear path towards everybody attaining the same uh, you know project of enlightenment they exactly conceived in europe so uh, we need to challenge that and they have done that right uh, like s- societies of the global south just becoming a mirror image of the west there's nothing for us to solve it's all solved before and every society has to move from tradition to modernity and at- achieve the stage uh, of modernity so all these notions have been you know challenged by post colonial theory and subaltern studies uh, who later on you know adopted many of the concerns of so- uh, post-colonial theory. So problematization of modernity is very important. We need to critique modernity. You know, what is the uh, what are the lineages of modernity? Where, Where is it coming from, the main ideas? And how it is, uh, these ideas have been colonized by Europe have become Eurocentric uh, and uh, they show us subaltern studies and post-colonial theory how power and knowledge have fused together. Those who have power have created knowledge in their uh, liking and excluded uh, A whole lot of marginalized uh, societies, not just subalterns, the languages and uh, cultures of the global South, uh, Africa, Asia, Latin America. So they're now coming to the fore, right, as uh, because of this marginalization under Eurocentric knowledge. So their uh, uh, critique of grand narratives of nationalism, socialism, and so on are, you know, very well taken. but my uh, uh, critique is because of that. Uh, is that from this critique they also uh, kind of uh, go back into adopting these binaries of tradition and modernity. Uh, modernity as European and tradition as you know non-Western or non-European societies, uh, and uh, you know uh, Marxism as alien uh, to Indian society. And one of the criticisms that they make is that. Uh, Marxism is hyper-rationalism. It does not take into account religion. Uh, so it's not fit to analyze, uh, uh, say, society like that of India, which is built on culture uh, of religion and community and so on. So uh, so they categorize Marxism as part of Eurocentricism uh, in which peasants are seen as backward. They have to become an industrial worker. And only then you can have, uh, you know, uh, in the Marxist in, according to their categorization then we can have uh, modernization and so on so they from under, trying to understand the ambivalences of indian modernity because they you know it has been uh, uh, complicated by european colonization and so on they kind of uh, go into this binary of uh, west versus east and a whole lot of binaries uh, like modernity and tradition and uh, individual and community and so on. So these are the kind of binaries, as you would see in my book, that I am trying to challenge, uh, to trying to critique. Uh, I already mentioned that you know Marxism became vernacularized. Marxism is not alien. In the as you s- uh, read the accounts of workers in the latter chapters, you would see that it is not seen as something foreign. Uh, instead, it is seen as corresponding to existing aspirations to equality, which stem from before you colon- uh, know the colonial era. So instead of uh, lack of understanding of culture or religion of India, many of these uh, people belonging to the peasant strata were willing to adopt Marxism or a Marxist lens. It's not just because it was imposed on them, but because it was appealing to them, as I mentioned why it was appealing, because it corresponded to aspirations of equality, right? So religious and caste consciousness are not the only frameworks for understanding Indian peasantry, or working classes, especially under colonialism. That here we have an example of how peasants and workers were willing to look at other lands to uh, seek their liberation, material liberation for example. So religion and culture or caste consciousness not, are, are not the only ways of understanding reality. Because you have a new philosophy or new ideology which uh, is trying to tell you uh, different things about, uh, you know, how your materiality is constituted. So uh, that is the reason why I said, you have to, uh, you know, uh, go beyond these binaries, whereas like criticisms like uh, Chibbers, which focused on um, the enlightenment framework as the only framework to understand uh, or kind of a universalism that I mentioned before. Whereas here we have to go beyond both, uh, not just the enlightenment framework or uh, an understanding before enlightenment or uh, pre-enlightenment non-European as essentialized. We need to go beyond both to understand uh, how uh, reality is being shaped uh, on the ground. So this externality and alienness of modernity um, is one of the major themes of subaltern studies and post-colonial theory, that modernity is alien to, uh, to India. And uh, some of these things that British colonialism brought, like individual rights, liberalism, and so on, alien, are not uh, something that accords with the uh, uh, native culture or consciousness and so on. So uh, I'll just quote uh, the historian, Sajay Subramaniam here, just for, uh, you know, to make uh, this point that, as he says, the subaltern school effectively locates all agency and processes of change in Europe and thus sees the Indian role as one of largely reacting and adapting to European initiatives. So this ostensibly radical view of colonialism is thus unable to escape many of the same assumptions of modernization theory and the even older colonial and exoticist view of India. So you can see how in seeking to counter Europe, you kind of place all agency on Europe, whereas the modernity project is not just European. right? It, uh, many of the ideas precede Uh, the Enlightenment and then but Europe has had the most significant say in uh, making the Enlightenment project but that does not mean that it is. Uh, So these huge binaries have to be challenged Um, and communist hegemony in Kerala was not brought about because of the fact that it was trying to build an industrial citizen like on a stagist Marxist linear path but uh, like to respond to your question based on the peasant for example So it is trying to build a democracy, fight for the rights of the peasant by acknowledging the fact that that's the major constituent of social reality, the peasants. So we are not trying to modernize them to get to democracy. We have to fight for what is there already, right? So in that sense, it overcomes the stages that peasant has to become an industrial worker and uh, Kerala was not developed industrially anyway. So it did not have a huge industrial working class, like in Marxist uh, theory, right? So you have to contend with what is there and which is true of many other communist movements in other part of the world. So in that sense, I also point out the fact that subaltern studies also theoretically wanted to inaugurate a democratic project with the peasant, focused on the peasant, because that's the reality of India as the citizen. So I say in my book, as you would have noticed, So in that sense, you know, the communist movement is also trying to do uh, the same kind of thing in terms of talking about the peasant and the peasant's real problems, both materially and symbolically. So whereas uh, subaltern studies in post-colonial theory, uh, they are talking about the peasant, but without talking about the material aspects, uh, because they are talking about the peasant in terms of cultural uh, aspects of uh, religion community consciousness whereas I am trying to show how this community and religious consciousness could be overcome in certain circumstances this is not a you know a determinist argument uh, under certain circumstances under the political conditions that and uh, social conditions that I try to draw that these are uh, you know they, it is possible to overcome so there's this consciousness is not some kind of an immutable element in peasant understanding or like cultural uh, spaces like that of India or any other non-European uh, countries and cultures, that it is possible to think uh, uh, alternatively to what your main uh, symbolic or cultural constitution is. So that is why present and worker uh, is important in my argument because as you saw in the chapters on uh, culture, that libraries and reading rooms become the main foci of the communist movement. So it is by reading, by understanding other uh, cultures, revolutions, and so on. So it's not just based on your own culture, but you are trying to imbibe what's happening from other parts of the world. And then workers and peasants are, especially peasants, are building modern, so-called modern institutions of the unions, and the, they're part of cooperatives and uh, cultural and literary organizations and civil society like modern civil society so it's again you see the binaries breaking down it's it's, uh, it's the peasant who is part of this attempt to construct something new a new democratic space uh, of conversations and public sphere um, and uh, through agitations say for example you know it's because of these agitations and uh, struggles that something like a welfare state was built in Kerala because of this. And obviously it's not only because of communist struggles, uh, I don't have to say that, there are so many other actors trying to you know, be active in this space. But the most important thing is obviously because materiality and class consciousness, which is the most important argument in my book, which is not necessarily the focus of uh, uh, subaltern studies and post-colonial theory, because as I said, they're seeing uh, this uh, reality, in terms of more in terms of cultural elements, rather than see how culture and materiality both are coming together. Um, so, peasant and worker, the peasant, especially the central point uh, uh, of my book, because of the fact that uh, they're seeing the structure in new terms, not in feudal terms or in. Uh, or in terms of community consciousness or uh, being subservient to the feudal lord, for example, these conceptions change. They're fighting for their rights. They believe that they are unequal in, in front of the other, no matter who the uh, superior or the person above you is, like a feudal lord or a capitalist owner. So there is a huge change uh, in terms of consciousness from religion and community being the only understanding Uh, to material understandings, to class consciousness. And more importantly, as uh, you would see, that this understanding also generates unintended consequences that going beyond communism. Language of defiance, class struggles take on other shapes, and so on. So that's precisely what I try to argue, right? That's why they're uh, in the central part of this. Uh,
0: Yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah, and... um... Because we're, now we're turning towards the latter sections of your book, which is uh, in many ways is turned to how the cultural and the material come together, but specifically in the in the literary aesthetic spheres of of um, Kerala's communist movement, because it's because as you say in your book, the cultural domain was a powerful uh, way in which people were able to come together. Uh, people were able to come together to mobilize, to um, develop this collective consciousness of, um, of where they wanted to go, the aspirations were often realized in that sphere. Um, so now when we're turning to chapters four and five, which turned to culture, literary, aesthetic, and the emergence of a new, albeit contested subaltern public sphere in the 1950s, as the communist movement picked up speed in Kerala during this time. And you tell us that while communism subverted earlier aesthetic and literary ideals grounded in caste class elitism, um, it's anti-democratic um, just to a large extent and more specifically Stalinist tendencies and uh, the tendency to control um, the masses, the narrative produced in many ways an incomplete project of socialist democracy for all. Uh, this is again something that we've already discussed to to some degree so far, but um, if you have to focus now, if you, if you have to shift, shift the focus slightly to the cultural domain, um, could you tell us more about the feelings of communism in Kerala on the one hand, that's being something we've already discussed, but on the other hand, what popular culture can tell us about the aspirations historically and the ideals that people shared especially those who were previously excluded from the domain of culture in Kerala because of class caste elitism. But now under the communist movement, how they were able to come together at at least aspirationally to to aspire to something Um, and why and why and how communism often depended on that in this period.
1: Yeah. So um, as you would see in the chapters uh, on culture that, culture becomes a cog in a material understanding. So this is one of the unique things that is happening there in the sense that cultural struggles are telling you how it is important to understand society from a material point standpoint. Right. So culture became a huge part of the communist movement, uh, whether it is in terms of drama, uh, folk uh, uh, songs and so on being used so on the un- one hand you have the popular level of drama and folk songs being adapted to party uh, you know uh, propaganda material on the other hand you have the progressive literature movement which is you know more focused on the reading public so you have the two halves coming together but i also uh, uh, as you notice uh, uh, outline why uh, you know this movement in the cultural sphere could not attain a more richer and more democratic national popular right so in the initial phase because of the huge uh, you know popularity that uh, communism enjoyed many of the non communists uh, for example uh, writers uh, and literators uh, and uh, so on uh, kind of affirmed the communist project uh, although they were not communists so uh, so this is a hegemony in the sense that you are able to attract people from not necessarily your own class, uh, working class, or uh, your political ideology. Uh, and it just shows the kind of huge uh, support at that time, for example, in the 40s, that communism was able to uh, achieve in Kerala. And uh, that kind of hegemony that uh, uh, communists built in trying to attract other uh, strata of society, which is a classic uh, model of hegemony, collapsed because of the you know debates on uh, the party becoming too uh, the communist party becoming too um, mechanical in its understanding of applying this politically, trying to curb the creativity of these writers by saying that you have to have a political stand on each and every you know minute issue. So this hegemony collapsed with the breakup of. Excuse me, of the progressive literature movement, for example. And uh, the writers, uh, the progressive writers, for example, who had given their uh, support to the communist movement withdrew that because of the fact that the party was now trying to ask for political opinions on each and every issue. And everybody had to strictly adhere to the party line as called, you know, a kind of uh, a classic standardized understanding of political reality in which art, has to follow the political line strictly without understanding that uh, it has to be more broad if it wants to, you know, reach uh, a wider section of the population. So those possibilities which existed uh, broke down in this debate between, uh, you know, art for art's sake or art for political and economic uh, uh, progress and this kind of a divide and the mechanical simplification that uh, the communist party indulged in and the kind of stalinist uh, disciplinarianism that it imposed on the party so in that cultural sphere the wider national popular the possibilities of that happening uh were not uh, born or did not realize themselves so you know that's a major uh problem with the national popular as i outlined so the political dimension became all perversive and uh, it also happened because not because, uh, as say, post-colonial theory or subaltern studies would say that Marxists were trying to, or communists in India were trying to imitate European theory or Marxist theory from outside. It is also, as communists themselves, leaders in Kerala say, uh, have written, because they didn't have wider access to theory or broader understanding of theory because they were all you know, activists and uh, political activists, uh, mainly with the theoretical side, underdeveloped so that is one of the major failures to uh, you know to build a larger uh, national popular with which was a possibility then uh, in popular culture these aspirations uh, as i detail the failures of caste for example so i earlier outlined that uh, communism was successful precisely because it went beyond gandhian nationalism in terms of addressing the material and symbolic aspects together But still, the elimination of caste uh, and, say, liberation of the indigenous people, for example, uh, these uh, aspirations are not still realized. So there is a huge gap, still. So despite the initial translation of uh, Marxism and communism into the local vernacular, the ultimate liberation for caste is still not attained. And uh, so, and I argue in the book, it is more located uh, it's, uh, in the practical realm rather than in a theoretical failure, as is usually alleged about the communist movement. So, untouchability and explicit caste-based humiliations obviously have ended. <coughs> Excuse me. Right, as you see in the... And uh, um, overt indignities have ended. Feudal landlordism has ended. But... Uh, despite this, Dalits and Adirwazis are still at the margins, at, still at the high, bottom of the era. So that's a great blot on what we call as the Kerala model, right? So this is not something that is uh, uh, looked at when we talk about uh, the Kerala model in uh, rosy and romantic terms or mm-hmm. communism in rosy and romantic terms, as you pointed out before, right? So this is where we have to complicate the story. Uh, so there is a radicalization in culture as... Uh, as you noted in the chapter on culture, in terms of uh, culture becomes a huge cog in in understanding the materiality and understanding society in structural terms. But still issues like that of Dalit uh, liberation or uh, you know, the problems of the previously untouchable caste, uh, these have not been resolved because of the fact, I argue crucially, it is not just because it is symbolically or culturally ignored. It's also a class problem in the sense that Dalits have still not won substantial economic or material um, uh, goals. They won um, uh, certain aspects of the these material issues that confronted them or solved those issues, like in terms of uh, uh, getting uh, access or, or ownership over their tiny homesteads, for example, where they were living attached to the feudal lords. But their... Uh, rightful claim on land to till uh, as a farmer or as a peasant. So that was uh, not possible or made, not made possible by the communist movement. And it's still not been achieved. And that is why in popular culture you see these aspirations are now taken over by as I say uh, communist m- movements outside the communist movement. Right? Vibrant Dalit and Adivasi struggles. right? So this is the unintended consequence i also mentioned of communist struggles or communist uh, assertions being taken over and trying trying to take these to a next level so huge uh, uh, hugely vibrant public sphere in terms of say uh, dalit and in say in the literary sphere for example it's now becoming more and more prominent uh, and this is not from uh, this is not as part of the communist uh, or the official communist or the party or the cultural uh, framework, but outside it, and challenging uh, these unrealized aspirations. So, so that is where, in popular culture, you see those reflections, right? So earlier, the Dalits were part of the, uh, uh, for the communist movement, uh, but when when they realized both symbolically and materially, they still not attained full equality, which was promised uh, initially, right? Like in, in, in terms of access to land, or full equality in terms of uh, symbolic uh, equality and so on. So this promise of substantial equality is unfulfilled and this incomplete attainment of class and economic goals, which is a key argument that I make uh, compared to other arguments which focus only on, like, say, Marxist failings of caste because they were theoretically unaware of caste, how caste works. Whereas I argue, no, it is is in practice, in actual practice of not being able to Uh, counter-caste because of the fact that uh, it knows uh, the movement knows how powerful the opposition is in terms of the domination of the upper caste and uh, uh, how difficult it is to completely to take a radical opinion uh, like uh, option of you know, um, tapping into the most radical counter-hegemonic caste ideas and so on so this is where now new struggles are coming emerging to challenge communist hegemony, and that you see the reflection in in popular culture.
0: Exactly, and thank you so much for that. And it's it's um, amazing how much you're able to cover in because those two chapters in the middle they're really substantial, and I would highly recommend um, that our you know our listeners in today that they take a look at that because that's a, the way it all comes together, especially in that pivotal period of the 1950s. I think it's crucial to understanding even how people were able to be mobilized under communism in this period with the culture and the literary and the aesthetic ideals coming together in a way that's often not very fully understood. Um, So thank you for that. And now, for the sake of time, unfortunately, we have to jump to the last question and wrap up soon, which is, so we have to go jump and again, combine two very rich chapters into one. Um, They they trace basically the workings of land reform and state decentralization in post-independence Kerala. And within the communist movement, you show how the land reform process was not a quote-unquote passive revolution involving instead, both the material and symbolic struggle, like you've mentioned already so far, um, involving both the material and symbolic struggle against feudalistic caste oppression. And this leads us to um, a major chunk of these two chapters, which is about the people's plan. Um, and if you could tell us a little more about that for our readers today and about why it was such a pivotal historical juncture in the making of a modern, albeit incomplete national popular imaginary in kerala and what did this plan achieve or try to achieve that previous reforms could not
1: yeah so um, so as you can see my book is as a thematic history of uh, the communist movement it does not try to uh, delineate everything that has happened uh, beyond the scope of the book and so obviously a thematic history has also its limits so you, uh, we move from one team to the other uh, so the last chapter, uh, or in terms of the themes, um, one of the last um, the last two chapters, uh, one of them is focused on, for example, the people's plan or participatory uh, planning to the attempt to involve the public in the planning process, in the development process. So this is a significant uh, move on the part of the communist movement, and it has been rightly, uh, you know, uh, lauded everywhere. Uh, in the global development studies and in the national development studies and uh, other circles and there's a lot of literature on it and so on. So uh, the, one of the reasons why the communist movement moved to uh, adopting something like a people's plan or a, a trying to bring about democratic decentralization was the fact also in the 90s this is in the 90s so this, this chapter is focused on from, from the 96 to the present in which this has happened is because the movement itself de-radicalizes. Some of the problems I already mentioned, right, that it is not able to address some of the core issues of the most oppressed sections of the population. So that is why the National Popular is incomplete, uh, which is my chapter following this chapter on People's Plan. So uh, this is an attempt to overcome, uh, on the one hand, this kind of de-radicalization and the stagnation of the communist movement, because it has been involved in the electoral sphere, competing like with all the other, the so-called bourgeois parties that it terms other parties as the bourgeois parties and being involved in the same kind of tactics that any bourgeois party would be doing and so on and so forth, right? So uh, I take this view in that chapter as you see that uh, there are two kinds of views on this. One is uh, in the literature that you romanticize this people's plan as, you know, completely democratic decentralization as, as, as being achieved. And uh, it's like one of the best things in the world to to have already been achieved. And the other is the, the just uh, opposite argument which just says, oh, this is just a World Bank kind of decentralization program and so on. <clears throat> so I, I try to go beyond both these arguments by arguing that, uh, no, there's nothing romantic to, uh, uh, it is it's not, uh, let's not look at it romantically. There, there's no... Uh, complete people's planning or people's rule that has been established. But uh, at the same time, it's also not like a World Bank kind of decentralization. It has got more scope than that in terms of future possibilities and so on. So it is an important effort, as I say, uh, at extending popular sovereignty, right, Uh, to the rule of the people. Uh, And it shows that, you know, there are possibilities of deepening democracy within the societies of the global South. And Kerala's uh, people's plan or participatory planning is an example of that. So again, it goes back to this binary of modernity and tradition, right? That it's not like European modernity coming uh, into uh, India or Kerala and that we are trying to copy something that has happened elsewhere. Rather, it is that uh, societies like Kerala and other places uh, or social movements are trying to contribute to a global modernity. Uh, that in many ways, some of these attempts have gone beyond what has happened in many places in Europe, uh, like, say, democratic decentralization attempts, like in Brazil and uh, in some other societies, for example, right? So we need to see this contribution or this uh, uh, making of modernity in the global south. It is The plan is obviously, as I said, there's, uh, there's, we need to shun our romantic lens and see that it has achieved mixed results, it has been completely institutionalized in the sense that it is now uh, difficult to roll back although there are many attempts to go back to a bureaucratic control over people's participation because bureaucracy does not want to leave power to the people or the you know people's uh, uh, in in people's hands so there is a substantial devolution of funds it was a big bang approach to democratically decentralize the state and uh, the survey results show there has been a pro, uh, pro poor tilt in the plan implementation. That poor people have been the, the people at the bottom of uh, the society have benefited from the plan in terms of uh, a- access to services and infrastructure and uh, uh, things like that, housing and sanitation, and, and so on. And surveys also showed that women and Dalits. Uh, and indigenous people have better access through the decentralization project. Um, So in that sense, it is an expansion of the welfare state, right? And new attention has been paid to issues like gender and ecology and so on. So you would be aware of this. And I also briefly talk about this because gender is not my focus in the book, but like self-help groups of women have emerged from this democratic decentralization process like the Kudumbasri, which is uh, apparently the largest women's self-help group in the world with about 5 million uh, membership, right? So that is a huge part of the decentralization of the people's uh, planning attempts in Kerala now, women's self-help groups, uh, and women entering the democratic sphere in the local governance and so on. Uh, So in that sense, these spaces have been created by this decentralization attempt brought by the left and the communist movement, Uh, uh, like this new kind of resources happening within society. So they have contributed to poverty reduction and asset building, building of social capital among women, like in the interviews and uh, ethnographic work I've done, I can see how women have taken to this in a huge way, especially in politics and representation and so on. But the caveat is this, that it is still reformist kind of uh, uh, change. It's not the kind of uh, change that the left uh, said that it will be challenging imperialist globalization. uh, Or, for example, the left or the communist movement has not addressed the substantial gender uh, imbalance, disparity in high politics, like in amongst uh, MLAs or ministers. And you can see that the left's representation of women, the representation of women in the left is is only marginally better than, say, the Congress or other parties. So this kind of a thing is not translated into the higher levels. Of course, in the local governance, because of the mandates, constitutional mandates, which has happened in other parts of India too, women have entered local governance in a big way. And it's usually, uh, uh, it's a big change if you talk to the women and the, uh, in terms of you know being confined to the home and being involved in activities like uh, the self-help groups or local politics, it's its a big change, but still, uh, if you understand that it is still not possible to talk about the higher levels of politics because the, the movement itself has not done anything specifically for that to break those structural barriers for women to go into higher levels or talk about real issues of uh, uh, sexual exploitation or new kinds of exploitation, gender-based exploitation and so on, right? So you see where the limitations are. So it's there's nothing romantic uh, we can't look at it uh, romantically. Uh, it does not achieve anything revolutionary, as I said, but it is an important, uh, one of the important attempts in the global south and even an example for the global north in terms of what what kind of possibilities exist. Um, but since mm-hmm. uh, the opening of this plan in the 90s, the huge changes also happened in society. Participation levels have gone down uh, because the entire idea is, Participatory planning, you know, all the people in the planning process, right from the bottom up. But now you can see bureaucracy is trying to claw back, uh, as I mentioned before, the state at the uh, at the state level trying to take back powers of the local bodies like the village councils, the Grama Sabha, for example, uh, which had you know better or more powerful uh, roles before encountering say big corporations opening factories or polluting factories like in the coca cola uh, agitation anti coca cola agitation that happened before in kerala so you see there is going back and forth also because unless this is preserved by active vigilance of the people uh, you know things can change fluctuate but one good thing is that it is institutionalized now that but now there is still so much more work to be done it's uh, it has deepened the state it is for example, during the pandemic and the floods, the decentralisation model helped uh, a big deal in you know contributing to mitigating this. So you can see how it is it it can work in those kind of situations because of that's what precisely it is meant for. But in terms of radical goals uh, of structural transformations, to talk about like the land ownership assets I told you, uh, the structural inequities and power relationships and redistribution of critical material resources, that has not happened, Uh, you know. So that is something that we need to keep in mind. Uh, Or development of alternative political institutions which can challenge the status quo and so on. You know, that has not happened, although it has deepened the welfare state, it has achieved many things. But again, as I say with the rest of uh, the arguments in other places, but these also are unintended consequences that opening up these spaces can lead to... uh, democratic changes which we have not envisaged by using these mechanisms and uh, local bodies people's participation taking a different turn to achieve something that was not yeah. conceived before
0: right absolutely in terms of unintended consequences we didn't we got into this a little bit but about how even outside the communist moment there were you know a lot of these reform and other um Groups and movements that were coming about, and not all of it was under the banner of communism, and not all of the, not all of what we see and enjoy in Kerala today are fruits so only of communism. There is, there is a lot that happened outside of it uh, that Absolutely, were in yeah. some ways. I, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, I don't delve into that in the book because that my book is on communism, but that's the kind of mistakes that we do in analysis, especially when you are not uh, diving in, uh, into it. Uh, in, from a scholarly perspective, because even in the 50s and 60s, there were other groups fighting for, uh, you know, democratizing the state, democratizing the civil uh, society, for example. And in the recent times, for example, as I mentioned, the Dalit and Adivasi struggles, uh, and that's why I say I challenge this modernity versus tradition binary, because, you know, you they are borrowing from uh, social protests and global movements from all over the world, you know, one of the slogans was uh, in the Dalit uh, Adivasi struggle, land struggle is keeping promises is a democratic etiquette, you know. So they're reclaiming democracy. It's not a question of European democracy or European modernity being imposed on India. No, we, we are trying to change. We are contributing to conception of... So that's why some of the biggest struggles in the demo, uh, in the democratic realm are to establish democracy are happening in the global south, not in the global north. Like in terms of students' movements, we saw the farmers' protests, like one of the huge, the biggest movements in in the world, like in India, or uh, like say the Muslim women protesting against CAA, which is like unprecedented. So you see how uh, you know obviously they have not achieved results like completely changing political institutions, but you see the kind of impact that they have. So absolutely, uh, uh, that is true. That there's so many things that are happening outside the communist movement. And because it has de-radicalized and the, now they're standing in opposition to say, so for example, some of the movements that are happening in the sphere of sexuality and uh, gender and so on, they, they are conservative, whereas those movements are trying to take that much forward, right? More for um, more than what could be envisaged before.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much Professor for, for taking us through that and it's, it's such a long deep history, but the, the way you cover it thematically is, is it's absolutely remarkable. Thank you for that. And unfortunately, now we've come to the end. But before we wrap up, I just have one final question for you. If you could just tell us if few words about any new projects you might be working on if they're connected to this existing one this this new book that's come out or something new something yeah. that you can look forward to
1: yeah uh, obviously i mean this has been in the works for a long time now i've moved on to uh, one of the themes that uh, still uh, part of my research uh, work now is still looking at modernity you know i'm, I'm fascinated by it how it is uh, appropriated or understood by uh, people on the ground, you know, testing things like modernization. What, what are the meanings of modernity? What do you mean by being modern and those kinds of things? So that is still part of my uh, work research now. Uh, I'm, there's also a, an article or a scholarship, uh, work of scholarship, which is coming out uh, on consumption in Kerala and the meanings of consumption and looking at consumption and so on. So that's one area. But now I am also looking at uh, work outside um, and looking at the idea of post-truth. So as you know, now we are increasingly debating about the uh, ineffectivity of something like, you know, or or truth does not matter. We have come to a political and social conjecture in which it does not matter what the truth is because uh, truth is you know, is something subject to contestation and uh, my truth is as valid as your truth and so that we can't come to an agreement on what truth is. So we are in a truly post-truth era. So I'm looking at the idea of post-truth vis-a-vis nationalism, and, uh, the spreading of fake news and uh, questioning of reality and uh, those aspects related to it. So that's one of my major areas uh, nationally and internationally look at this phenomenon of... Uh, the questioning of the idea of truth.
0: Thank you so much. It sounds like a fascinating project. And I I, I, I at least will definitely be following and look forward to seeing whatever you come up with next. Um, but thank you so much for joining me on this podcast today. And um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, and yes, thank you to all our listeners for tuning in today. This is your host, Irene Pramod. This was my um, author today, Professor Manatukaran. Um, And thank you for joining us and stay tuned for the next episode on new books in South Asian studies.